Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. And for those of you who are maybe not trafficking in books, you might not know what Foxed page means. Foxing is simply those little dots that you'll see sometimes on the uh, pages of very old, very beloved books. Quick note before we dive into Deadwood today, this is a lecture that was actually delivered in 2022 for um, my incredible crowd of uh, readers over at Kepler's Books. So there are a couple of different times uh, where I will refer to uh, you know things that sound like maybe I'm giving a live lecture. <clears throat> so if there are uh, you know some little inconsistencies and some little weirdnesses, uh, thank you for your patience and enjoy. Welcome. Um, I am so excited about um, talking about the television adaptation of Deadwood. It was super fun to take a look at some of the things that have been written about the Shakespearean overtones of Deadwood and also just about the, the television itself. I think some of you may have read the, the story in The New Yorker about David Milch and his Alzheimer's diagnosis. And if you um, have an appreciation for the language in the film, it's really pretty striking to realize that um, th this was actually when he was making the movies, which were the end. Um, they came out in 2019, I believe. Um, the series itself ran from 2004 to 2006. So he was free of Alzheimer's when he was writing the actual series, but was declining when he was writing um, the, the movie that is essentially the wrap up that all of the viewers were waiting for. So if you haven't read the New Yorker piece, it's really interesting to take a look at. There isn't a lot of stuff in there about the Shakespearean um, aspects, but what we're gonna do today is take a look at um, some of the things that Pete Dexter is doing, that David Milch is doing, and that Shakespeare is doing. We're going to put them all on the same on the same plane, and I hope that will be um, interesting and and um, you know sort of elucidating. Also, I hope that you want to go back and uh, watch the television if you haven't watched it already. It's just unbelievable TV. Um, although you'll have such a flavor by the end of it today that if you're not into a little bit of violence and a lot of uh, bad, bad language, then it might not be the thing for you. Okay, we're gonna dive on in. So one thing about David Milch, he, he claimed, I never read this, um, and this actually could be some sort of weird apocryphal urban myth kind of a thing, but apparently he claimed to never have read the Pete Dexter novel. To me, that seems a little bit... Um, I don't know if it's disingenuous, but it seems a little bit false in the sense that there is so much emphasis in the um, television series on Bill Hickok's death uh, as sort of the, the time frame in which the, the series is taking place, but also the emphasis on Al Swearingen and the emphasis on Seth Bullock. Um, the the, the uh, sort of transition that we see or the evolution that we see in the television show has everything to do with with those two characters. Basically, the two of them really, you know, in my watching of the series, they seem to me very much like the main characters. And I think to some extent, you can argue that they are very central characters as well in uh, the Pete Dexter novel. And actually, Charlie Utter is a very, very big presence. He he's another person who really comes to the fore uh, in in the television adaptation. So he's another sort of hero that we see that runs. He doesn't have his own section in Deadwood, but he certainly runs throughout the entire novel and is a very well sort of fleshed out character. But the big thing, the big the big idea here is that it does not matter. It doesn't matter if 
that, you know, David Milch was working from the Pete Dexter novel or not. It really, it doesn't. They're both working from the same source material. So they're both working from this same historical moment. And what's interesting is when you start to take a look at that historical moment that both Dexter and Milch are working from, it really was, well, th that period, 1876, oh my gosh. I think that's right, um, in the Dakota Territory. So during the, the so-called Indian Wars, when the United States was stealing back that land um, that we had given to the Lakota Sioux, once we realized there was gold, we're gonna steal that land back. Um, and sort of the outlaw nature of what was happening there uh, and, and this need to sort of build a community, but, but one that is very uh, unstable, had everything to do with uh, what was happening with Shakespeare during the time of King Lear and Macbeth, when you had the death of Elizabeth and some sort of uncertainty as to who was going to step in and fill this, this power vacuum. So we're gonna look at, at this source material uh, in, in, in sort of what we see both for a lot of the Shakespearean tragedies that we also are seeing both in uh, the novel and in the television series of Deadwood. Uh, okay, so in Dexter, I also I just want to talk a little bit about the Shakespearean piece of this. So in Dexter, if you all remember, we have these Shakespearean actors. So Mr. Langriche and Mrs. Langriche, who actually is a very large character in many ways because she's so um, she's a foil for Agnes Lake, but she's she sort of looms large in um, in Charlie Utter's uh, you know vision of the world. So he has Shakespearean actors who are very important players in the play. And then, of course, we have a couple of plays within the play. Um, and we do have that Shakespearean thing. And in both of them, you know, the weather comes in and, and all sorts of hell breaks loose. So there is this idea of these very Shakespearean tropes that are in the novel. Uh, and in the David Milch television adaptation, there are all sorts of Shakespearean things, which is the main thing that we're going to be looking at today, but it's helpful or not helpful. It's interesting to know that David Milch actually wrote a lot of the television show in Iambic Pentameter. The other thing that he does is he has these long monologues is what we would call them now, but they are essentially soliloquies. We have these long soliloquies that are really, really unusual in television, especially television in the 21st century. So you have both Dexter and Milch borrowing um, some of these sort of very Shakespearean feelings. Uh, and also in um, Milch, you have some very specific things. Uh, so we don't have Shakespearean actors, but we have Al Swearingen talking to this beheaded Indian who he has in a box. And all of these um, soliloquies that he has with this Indian head are very reminiscent of Hamlet um, holding the skull of poor Yorick. So you have this very Shakespearean trope from one of the, you know, one of the most important tragedies that runs throughout uh, much of the television series. So there are lots and lots of Shakespearean things that are that are happening. Uh, just to give you a quick sense of Milch and, and to sort of convince you of his literary credentials, he was a writing teacher at Yale. He also was an undergrad at Yale, uh, and he was hugely devoted to Hawthorne and to Mark Twain and to uh, Melville and Faulkner. He and one of his daughters worked on an adaptation of Light in August by Faulkner. So this is someone who is not shying away from difficult language and from 
from plots that are really very much uh, about sort of the big, big human questions. At one point, David Milch said that um, every single play or play, every single television screenplay that he writes has to do with time. And uh, the same daughter who worked on him with the Light in August uh, adaptation said that her father doesn't do storyboarding. He doesn't do plot. What he's really always working for is uh, the the reactions of the characters and the development and the, the the sort of the evolution of the characters, which there's a lot of plot in Shakespeare. But if you think back to King Lear, it's much, much more important to look at the evolution of Lear and of Goneril and of Cordelia, all of the transitions, all of the changes that happen during the course of Lear. It's um, there is a lot of plot on some level, but a lot of it happens sort of right up front. And then what we are left with is this, this situation of all of these interplay, all of these dynamics that are happening in Lear, that are happening in England as society is shifting around and as different, um, you know, vacuums are needing to be needing to be filled. So it's very much the same sort of terrain that we see David Milch working with. Interestingly, he did want to write well, he did write a pilot um, after the success of, of Deadwood. So after Deadwood did not get picked up again because it didn't have, you know, the enormous ratings that HBO wanted at the time. And um, people say it's sort of cursed because they everybody was expecting another two seasons. And so we were expecting this whole sort of arc. And when HBO canceled it, lots and lots of fans were very upset. And what was promised was this movie that finally happened in 2019. But between 2006 and 2019, David Milch wrote uh, a, a pilot called The Money. And the topic of that was uh, King Lear meets Rupert Murdoch's family. So if that sounds like a certain television show to you, you're exactly right. Uh, it's not, he has nothing to do with succession. HBO did not pick up this show that David Milch wrote called The Money. Um, but you can see this very, very clear Shakespearean influence here in that he saw King Lear, he would see these sort of Shakespearean um, shapes in lots of different ways. Clearly, um, you know, this is something, it's it, it, because Shakespeare was so invested in the big, big questions and was not afraid to tackle huge questions of history and huge questions of philosophy and existentialism, um, it, it is very much like the success of a show like Succession or a show like Deadwood, where you're really tackling some of these large questions about worth you know and and money and society and greed and authority and vacuums um, of authority so all of um all of these different layers whether it's the king lear and rupert murdoch stuff that milch was doing there's a there's a very shakespearean overtone that that there's very very wide agreement that deadwood has lots of lots of debts to shakespeare what's interesting to me is it's actually shakespearean language that you see in deadwood not just the themes an interesting thing about Milch, before he started on the Deadwood adaptation, he um, he wanted to do something about the fall of Rome because it was sort of the same questions. Um, it's actually sort of the inverse uh, in the sense that he wanted to write about the fall of Rome. He's, he's writing in Deadwood about essentially the birth of this civilization, of this town, of the West, of the United States in lots of ways. But he wanted to look at lots of these same themes in the fall of Rome. And HBO had done something with Rome recently. And so um, they said, why don't you just pick another 
time, you know, one that's very sort of rich in all of these different themes that are preoccupying you. And what the source material he came to was this notion of deadwood. So there's lots of thinking that went into this, lots of sort of, you know, uh, uh, more than a decade um, of David Milch thinking about this, but certainly um, we're tackling some of the big, big, uh, big, big themes and, you know, things that are certainly worthy of Shakespeare. But again, what's interesting is one of the main things that he lands on is the Shakespearean language. Okay. So I'm going to um, share my screen. There's lots of writing, um, actually a lot of academic writing about Shakespeare. I mean, about, well, about Shakespeare in Deadwood. Um, but my JSTOR like subscription had run out. Also, it seemed a little esoteric and a little navel gazy. So I kind of read the um, abstract, which is very bad. You're supposed to, you know, pay for what you're reading in an academic journal. Um, but I got a sense of, of sort of some of the different academic things, and they're actually not very far from some of these um, musings by more popular and more accessible um, people writing about the show. So Emily St. James in Vox says, Deadwood is about the impulses that give birth to civilization, the idea that living in a society necessarily requires the slow negotiation of the self with other selves. So if we go back to the novel and we think about it, it absolutely is that. So if Charlie Utter is one of the main characters that we see from the beginning to the end of the novel, um, we, we see him really having uh, to negotiate himself with all of these other selves. You see him in relationship to this sort of, um, you know, his other self, which is Hickok, but you also see him negotiating, um, you know, with Mrs. Langrish and also with his nephew. So nephew yes so um you see you see the, this exact thing this idea of a society um that that is trying to establish itself uh but you have i i like the emphasis here on characters because i think that is one of the things that david milch really picks up and and runs with and tyler malone and lit hub wrote something very similar deadwood is about society organizing itself around symbols to, to stave off the chaos so Tyler Malone goes on a, a bit more to write about things like, um, you know, deciding that money was going to, uh, you know, be the way that we would essentially measure whether or not someone was attaining the American dream. This goes back to when we looked at Gatsby, it goes back to lots and lots of books that we have read about the American dream and this whole sort of rags to riches trope. Um, one of the things that is negotiated here is that if you have gold, which can be, you know, it was at this point an actual currency, but it also would allow you, you know, you have the building of a bank and you have all of these different things that are that are happening um, during the, the novel and also during the television show that are essentially making decisions about who the authority figures are, whether it's the sheriff, whether it's every man for himself, um, we're deciding the role of women, we're deciding the role of the immigrant, we're deciding the role of, you know, who gets to make decisions and who gets to meet out the justice and who decides the punishments. Um, and as we said before, this is literally the wild, wild west, so there's not a lot of control. Uh, and so there is a sense, and David Milch made a very interesting point about that, which is that 
they didn't want to establish too many laws. And this is a subtle tension that happens in the novel as well. They didn't want to establish too much government or too many laws in the Dakota territories because they wanted to become part of the United States. And if they had too much stuff kind of up and running, then they would be considered potentially their own sort of sovereign place. So there was this tension between needing authority and needing laws and needing to establish society, civilization, but also this idea that they don't want to get too codified because they wanted to, in fact, become, you know, sort of move under the umbrella of the United States. Okay, so just a few of the things that we just mentioned, money, laws, authority figures, punishment, um, and, and those are lots of the same things that were happening with Lear, you know, this question of who's going to step into the role, what is the role of the military, what is the role of uh, legality, um, and this idea of, of a vacuum of a, of, of, I mean, Seth Bullock, especially in the television show, is not excited about stepping into this vacuum uh, of the authority figure, and yet he gets sort of coerced into becoming the sheriff, but he's always a very reluctant sheriff. Uh, and the larger vacuum in both the novel and in the television show is this idea of American um, American government. I mean, that there isn't a, um, you know, an established sense of the United States. I think there were 39, 31 states at this point, but obviously the Dakotas were not one of them. So there is this sense of, of a real vacuum, especially given the way that we uh, rely on our government these days. So one of the things to, um, that, that that Emily um, St. James makes this point is that, that essentially these characters are forced to make all of these horrible decisions uh, in order to preserve society. And then, of course, if they're made to sort of cover up all of these horrible decisions with these lies in order to preserve society. Um, so there's this idea of society as being necessary, but also that society really is, is, is sort of rests upon lies and deceit and competing interests and, and just the complications, the, the, um, especially in the United States, this idea of independence and free will and, you know, the pursuit of happiness, all of these different things that are guaranteed by the Constitution that these people wanted to live under. And yet, um, you know, it's just a total crazy free for all up there. Uh, okay, now we're going to dive into a little bit of this Shakespeare. So before we do look at the clips, uh, there are a few things that, that you can look at in the David Milch uh, television that is borrowed directly, directly, directly from Shakespeare. So one, as I mentioned before, is that a lot of the work is written in iambic pentameter. So, and it's, it's the same as for example, in King Lear, 75% of King Lear, I believe, um, is, is uh, poetry. It's in iambic pentameter. And then some 25%, I'm, I'm trying, I'm remembering this. So do not quote me on that. But, um, you know, maybe a quarter of it is written in prose. So, you know, it's, it's not that like all of Deadwood is written in iambic pentameter, but there is this sense of, of, of uh, a cadence that, that you get kind of caught up in. And it actually is very helpful uh, in terms of, of sort of expectations. And, and, and I think there is something very pleasing about it, that thing about iambic pentameter being sort of the beating of the heart, the da-dun, 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 that regularity is very sort of um, human in lots of ways. So there's also this sense of, of the Baroque. So in 
Shakespeare, there's lots and lots of layering and lots and lots of um, metaphor and simile and lots of inflated diction. Um, but there's also very, very sort of low humor and very crass comments, a lot of profanity. So in Deadwood, what you do see is lots and lots of this Baroquely profane stuff. I mean, it's really uh, a lot of it is really sort of uh, filthy. Filthy, maybe is the word. And there's a lot of low humor. So you have foul language, you have low humor, which of course, um, you know, it, it's somewhat necessary. It came under a lot of fire, the television show, when it came out because the language is so filthy. And a lot of people were concerned about the anachronistic sense of, you know, were they using cocksucker at the time and were they using fuck at the time and sort of all these. I should do a parental warning. If you have small children running around and you don't want them to hear profane things, you should maybe get yourself some headphones. Um, but he, everybody was complaining because, you know, they, they, um, there was lots and lots of bad language, bad language. And um, it, it wasn't in keeping with the times necessarily. Copsucker, in fact, was um, because we looked it up because we were so like, wait, is this a word they used? Because they use it a lot in the television series. But those some of it's anachronistic for sure, meaning that it wasn't appropriate for that time. But David Milch makes the really good point that he's not actually that interested in historical accuracy. And, and the entire thing works much better because of that if they were saying like what in tarnation or like that scallywag or you know sort of whatever the thing would have been at the time I think we would have lost some of the immediacy and certainly we would have lost some of our ability to really relate to these people so prepare yourself because there's a lot of um a lot of sort of foul language and a lot of low humor but the important thing to remember is that Shakespeare is rife with all of that stuff. So there's that whole part. I mean, there's lots of it in King Lear, but there's a whole thing about um, vaginas. That's like this long um, involved kind of extended metaphor toward the beginning. Uh, and then there's like that very profane thing that Lear is saying about his daughters um, and they're sort of oversexed, you know, power hungry stuff and lots of swearing, lots of the C word, lots of all sorts of different words. Um, so, so it's not, it's sort of like David Milch is coming by this honestly, is maybe how we can think about it. Okay, so um, another thing that's totally astounding to me is this idea that that David Milch was writing all of this stuff was sort of written the day before. He would often be making changes up until you know the evening. So, so this was a kind of writing that actually was also like Shakespeare in that it was very time pressured, and there is a sense of it, um, you know, because it's a visual medium. There are lots of things that are uh, not necessarily expressed in uh, the sort of uh, the connecting tissue like we see in the novel because you have the visuals, you have the visuals. And so, so some of the language, you know, if you were to look at just the screenplay of Deadwood, in fact, Timothy Oliphant, we're going to look at a, um, a quotation from him about how, how difficult and sometimes the, the language was because it, it was, you know, relying somewhat on, on the background, but also just because this was David Milch. Okay. Oh, yeah. So this is the Timothy Oliphant um, quotation. I love this. So he was talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 2019. One testament to Milch and how invested people were in the series is that almost all of the principals, except for two who had died, uh, came back. Everybody who was in the 2004 to 2006 television thing came back for the movie that was the conclusion uh, of the series, which is really a testament to how people felt about it. 
uh, at the time and the loyalty and, you know, every every actor who writes or or speaks about their experience on Deadwood is just absolutely, you know, just glowing about what an incredible opportunity it was. Timothy Oliphant said, you would read something and just crack up because how far it pushed the boundaries of what you thought was okay to do on television. Or you read it and you thought to yourself, what am I talking about? And he laughs, I don't understand any of this. You know, you really had to kind of wrap your head around something. So he, he talks about the difficulty of, of understanding, you know, how this, this Shakespearean stuff was, you know, to, to memorize this stuff in order to do it that same day, again, with some of these longer soliloquies, but almost all of it, there, there were, I mean, gosh, a lot of times where we would be watching and I would say to my family, I'd be like, not even sure I understand what's going on, but I love this. So there is a sense of, of the language sometimes as being a little opaque. Um, okay, so this is a this is a clip. It must be at the very beginning of the thing because essentially it's Al Swearingen meeting Seth Bullock. So again, Al Swearingen, he is really, really despicable and terrible in the novel. And he absolutely is at the beginning of the television show and one of the most impressive uh, sort of evolutions that happens throughout is this idea of Al Swearingen as becoming sort of a pillar of society, whereas in the beginning he's he's despicable. I've transcribed a small part of it to take a look at the Shakespearean aspects. So we're gonna um, just sit back and relax, enjoy the film. What did you know about me, Bullock? First we met, no concern for my feelings. That you were a killer. Certain facts show in the mug. Look at her. You know she's fucked for food. What's the point? In your mug, there's no such history. Are you a cunt-driven near maniac or a stalwart driven by principle? The man you cannot tell for you yourself are so fucking confused. But you do make a good appearance, so they're prone to grant you their trust, which we will use as an asset in the coming campaign. What's the campaign? You have friends in Montana in high position, some type fucking judge. I cut ties with the judge in Montana. Amiably or owing money? Maybe you're mistrusted less as a killer than showing your cars a corner at a time. Our cause is surviving, not being allied with Yankton or Cogs in the Hearst machine. To show it don't fade us as runts or two-headed calves or pigs with excess legs to a good fucking grinding up. I only mentioned the judge in Montana toward maybe drumming up interest in us there. Annexation to Montana instead of Dakota. Hiking our skirts to Helena might put Yankton back on its heels. And as minutes turn to hours over the piss spot, I wonder should we ruinate publicly in loud voices over forming a new territory with an eye towards future statehood or even our own republic. No dictatorship. The fuck do we need a dictatorship for? The silence is the public voice. That eases the enemy's way. Noise made overtures to outside interests and Enlistment of the hoople's participation is what the situation demands. And a trustworthy mug with a vague motive out there. Bugling the call. I'm not interested. A moment. Permits interest in one question only. Will we of Deadwood be more than target for ass-fucking? And our grab ankle is to declare yourself interested. Okay, so I think that you can get, I mean, 
gosh, I, this is actually such a great clip. Um, it's such a great clip because it really speaks to, it's so funny, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of the content, but it speaks to this idea of, I mean, it's very strategic what's happening here. They're talking about, do they want to be annexed by Montana? Are they going to be in the Dakotas? They're talking about Hearst. So this is William Randolph Hearst, who, who actually becomes a very large part of the television show. Uh, this idea of money, this idea of monopoly, this idea of, uh, you know, a nationwide, um, you know, sort of, well, monopoly, you know, I mean, it, that was one of the huge, as you all remember from 10th grade <laughs> history, you know, such a big deal, this idea of how are we going to handle power? And if money is power, and if Hearst has all of these, these enormously successful minds, how are they not going to be all sort of gobbled up? Sounds familiar, still doing it today. Um, not with gold mines necessarily. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of questions about how, as Americans, how are we going to share our wealth? It's not going very well. But I want to take a look at this. So, Al, this is at the very beginning. What did you know about me, boy? First we met, no concern for my feelings. So right from the top, um, this idea of first we met, no concern for my feelings, it, the, even the sort of the locution is very Shakespearean. You know, what did you know about me first we met? That is not that is not the way that we speak now. It is not the way that the cowboys would have spoken at the time. Um, no concern for my feelings that you were a killer. And I loved this because this certain facts show in the muck. Um, so as we found in the Pete Dexter novel, the, the um, roads, I mean, it was just a quagmire living in this gully of Deadwood. It just was, you know, mud and muck and but what I love about it, and, and I think that um, Ian McShane, who's the actor, does a great job of delivering it. It's a little bit of an aside, and it's very Shakespearean in its feel, because you have that same, it's like, I mean, it's important for the audience to see these kinds of facts confirmed, but I love it because it is, you know, he's saying literally as an aside, it's so Shakespearean that there's this sort of confirmation that comes, but he's not saying it to Timothy Oliphant. And then um, he kind of moves on to this idea. Look at her, you know she's fucked for food. Oops, I forgot to bold Seth there, sorry. So there's this idea of what we can see in this woman, the fact that she is, you know, her, her role in the town is that in order for her to receive sustenance, um, she needs to sell her body. Um, so there is this idea, again, of, of sort of how society is being set up. But what he's saying there is look at her. And even the, the alliteration of fucked for food, those three Fs in a row, it, there's a very sort of forceful and very poetic kind of lyrical sense of that. And then we have Seth saying, what's the point? In your mug, there's no such history. And that, so that again, that um, that uh, switching, I mean, you, there's no such history in your mug, meaning his face. Um, but, you know, you could hear Shakespeare saying, you know, in your visage, there's no such history. It's very the way that it's semantically put together is very Shakespearean. And then this next um, this next line, are you a cunt driven near maniac or a stalwart driven by principle? So um, the C word really big deal in um, Shakespeare's time too. There's lots of lots of that use of that word. But, but this idea of driven and driven and stalwart. So there is this question, it's a very big question. Like, are you, who are you? What am I to make of you? Are you an ally of mine or not? And then we get even more Shakespearean. The many, 
cannot tell for you yourself are so fucking confused. So I love the delivery of that line because the many cannot tell for you yourself is a little convoluted and very Shakespearean. But when he gives that line, you yourself are so fucking confused, the, um, the, it's very like clear. And I think the use of the F word, which is slightly anachronistic, the amount that elsewhere engine uses it is anachronistic. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But it's it makes it very uh, real and very kind of present day, and it makes us understand that Seth Bullock is confused. Seth Bullock does not know who he is. He doesn't want to be the sheriff, and yet he's being sort of cornered into being a sheriff. He wants to build a brickworks, but right now he's you know at a hardware store. So there's a um, there there's some very clear messages that are being transmitted here, but it's also within the the, the sort of context of this really beautiful language. The many cannot tell for you yourself are so fucking confused, but you do make a good appearance. So they are prone to grant you their trust, which we will use in the coming campaign. And we're gonna do a reading of iambic pentameter, but it's not consistent enough. And I am not good enough at meter, at marking and reading meter to, to have done that. Not a poet myself, um, but it's so Shakespearean, but you do make a good appearance. So they are prone to grant you their trust, which we will use in the coming campaign. It's like, this could have been taken right straight from Lear. So, and then throughout you have lots and lots of alliteration. So the coming campaign, um, th there's a lot of use of these sort of, again, just semantically, uh, this language that is very Shakespearean in feel. Okay, our next clip, which is this one, um, this is, Al, I love this one so much. So this is Al Swearingen and he he's in town. He runs something called the gem, which is the brothel. So he um, this is him with the with the uh, severed head of the native indigenous person. But this character, Dan, uh, is sort of his henchman, really. And Dan is so I mean, I, for those of you who've watched it, I'm not sure you all feel this way, but I just love everyone on this show. And Dan is hilarious in this. We're going to listen to the whole thing. Um, but note when you're listening to it, how much of it feels like a soliloquy. So the characters who are like the um, the ones who are going to see lots of transition from Al Swearingen, uh, a couple of different ones, you, you have them speaking these longer monologues, whereas someone like Seth Bullock, or in this case, someone like Dan, is just, um, you know, putting in a few kind of, you know, short one-liners uh, throughout. Okay, here is, um, by the way, one thing about Seth Bullock. So Timothy Oliphant, when he went in to read for David Milch, he, he had read the, um, the screenplay and really wanted the part Timothy Oliphant had. And he went in and he said he just sat across from David Milch, who apparently was a little nervous about the whole thing too. It was David Milch, a casting director and a producer. And he said he just sat there and like kind of gave them that same energy, like where he he just said almost nothing and just kind of stared at them the whole time. And right away they offered him the part. But apparently he and his wife laughed a lot because that was his whole plan was to go in and just be like very stalwart. He's a he's a very like um, does not. He's like um, in Friday Night Lights, the Kyle uh, Chandler character, Coach Taylor where there is so much acting and so much expression happening that's nonverbal that Timothy Oliphant really went into the um, audition with that. Okay, but here we have Al Swearingen again with his henchman Dan and the, uh, and the, the, the severed head. Okay. 
some kind of fucking division of feelings? Yeah. If I'm overstepping, boss, I apologize. I'm waiting. Sometimes I hear you speaking in here when I know there's nobody in here but you. You have not yet reached the age, Dan, where you moved to utterance of thoughts properly kept silent. Been known to mutter. Not the odd mutter. Habitual fucking vocalizing of thoughts best kept to yourself. The severed, rotting head I paid bounty on last year of that murdered fucking Indian. Subscribe one way or another to Tom Nodall's big ride? No. I'm a, I don't see him making it, but I didn't want to root again him. The Indian got an opinion? Don't the decapitated deserve recreation, Chief? As much, if not more so, than those of us yet not dismembered. You, fucking Chief, are uglier than before. Well, you're also not a treat to the eyes. Suffer the low vantage. It's better for my standard in the camp. Okay. So Dan comes in, says he hears him, um, you know, speaking when he knows no one else is in the room. And Al says, you've not, sorry, you have not reached the age yet, Dan, have you? Or you're moved to the utterance of thoughts properly kept silent, been known to mutter, not the odd mutter, habitual fucking vocalizing of thoughts best kept to yourself. I will confide further. Lately, I talked to this package. So um, I'm not gonna try to scan all of these for you, but I did in this case separate them. So if we were to go through and, and mark all the scansion and really like try to figure out the, the meter of all of this, we do have tons of IAMs. So those are the words that are da 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 da. And in lots of cases, you can separate it so that you have five of those foots, five of those da-da, 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 da-da. It's amazing because it's mostly Al talking. Again, we have this kind of long soliloquy sort of thing with just small interjections from Dan. But I also like this because there's a lot of that humor, um, that kind of low humor that Shakespeare is talking about. Um, and then he goes out, I mean, we could look very carefully at the whole scene because it is so good, but he goes out and here we have more um, of, of this language that feels very Shakespearean. He's talking to the chief himself and there's lots of this, uh, you know, him sort of um, having these, it's, it's very much like Hamlet with poor Yorick, um, you know, trying to figure out what to do and how to make sense of, again, another vacuum um, and, and his place uh, in, you know, as far as revenge goes. Okay, so he says, don't the, de <laughs> wow, sorry. Don't the decapitated deserve recreation, chief? I mean, that the decapitated deserve recreation, chief. There's so many beautiful things here. You have the, the repetition of the decapitated deserve and decapitated and recreation and recreation, chief. You have these um, repetitions of sounds that are so beautifully, uh, woven together, it's really, like if you were to take this apart linguistically, it's really sophisticated. It blows my mind that David Milch was writing this stuff like the afternoon before, and then that this that Ian McShane, the Al Swearingen character, was would be able to to not only you know memorize it and and deliver it in a way that feels very Shakespearean, but also manage somehow to to convey 
the meaning that kind of your average listener needs to hear. Don't the decapitated deserve recreation chief as much, if not more so than those of us not yet dismembered? Again, like that is a locution as much, if not more so than those of us not yet dismembered. It's very Shakespearean. Okay, and then I loved this. This is that kind of low humor and those sorts of puns. He says, you fucking chief are uglier before and you're also not, not a treat to the eyes. So there's this idea you think, you know, when he's using the word uglier or ugly, it's a visual thing, but then he's allowing um, the, the audience to know that the ugliness is a smell, uh, but it's sort of after the thought and there's a sophistication to that. There's sort of a, um, a, a low, uh, in terms of like lowbrow, there's a lowbrow sense of like, you know, it's, it's like a, I don't know, like a joke that you would tell in a bar or something like that. Um, and then he says, suffer the low vantage. It's better for my standing in the camp. So there's this idea that, I mean, suffer the low vantage. Like he's put the skull down low. So there is this sense of, of, of the chief as being, um, you know, essentially like the, it's, it's actually not like York because York is sort of a, like an everyman if my um, memory of Hamlet serves, but the chief, you know, he, he's ascribing some kind of authority to this figure. And so he's saying, suffer the low vantage, meaning your, the, you know, your view is going to be low down here because I need to stand above you in this, in this camp. So there is this sense of, of, of you know, uh, positionality and authority and whether or not Al Swearingen has authority in the camp. And, and he's, he's sort of self-deprecating in the sense that he's needing to put the, the, the chief of the native peoples lower so that he can feel better about himself. It's just, it's just genius. Okay, we're gonna look at one last, uh, one last clip here. Uh, this one is Alma is a, a woman who comes into camp and she dis, her, she has a claim and she's unusual because she wants to come to the camp in order to do her own mining. So she's very excited uh, about this idea of um, of uh, you know striking it rich. And they get there and her husband dies and it's somewhat suspicious. But then Alma's father arrives. And Alma's father, uh, again, we have this kind of soliloquy that happens on the part of Alma, I mean, on the part of Alma's father. And again, we have Timothy Oliphant just really saying a lot by not saying a thing. What I like in this one too, is there's some asides where he's playing craps. So there's gambling that's happening also in the gym, in the, in the brothel. So these asides that he is, um, where he's, He's making an occasional bet during the soliloquy. It's only like two minutes long, but he it's so important because all of this gambling that they're doing is um, it, it's a metaphor for the kinds of gambles that they are willing, you know, the risks that they are willing to take. And in this case, the, the, the idea of him, uh, you know, playing craps at the same time, which, and craps is usually a game where you have lots of people playing and, and it's, there's a lot of sort of like community that goes along with it. So it's significant that he's playing by himself. There are all sorts of things that you can read into just these asides, but you can also imagine, you know, in a Shakespearean play where you wouldn't necessarily have, you know, a game set up, but these um, verbal asides make clear not only that we're talking about a gamble here and risk tolerance, but we're also, um, it, it sort of anchors the scene. 
this is the sheriff of the town who is having, you know, this, this very heated uh, conversation. Okay, here we go. Mr. Bullock, when young and incapable, now you see wrongs everywhere and bullying, you feel called to remedy. Take the present with more clarity. Perhaps you'd recognize that I'm not victimizing my daughter, but merely asking for a small portion of the ample proceeds. Alma is heard only in your particular view. You inhale and expel pure righteousness. My olfactories are keen to the smell of shit. Six, the point is six. Having heard all that, and knowing as you must, the injudiciousness of making an enemy of a man who could testify truthfully, that five minutes before her marriage, he heard his daughter wish her prospective husband dead, and who won't shrink from lying as to what she admitted to him on his arrival in this cesspool, as to her complicity in her husband's murder. Okay, I'm gonna um, spare you all of the uh, the sort of gruesome part. I love that little detail there where the um, the guy who is running the craps game says, gentlemen, watch the felt, like as they're starting to get into their fight. I mean, this is this idea of lawlessness. This is the sheriff of the town who is having, you know, this, this very heated uh, conversation. I realized in watching it that time, I wish I knew more about craps because he has a six and an eight. I think you have to, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I, it seems like he's not being particularly successful. So I think you could probably read all sorts of stuff if you knew more about the game into what is actually happening on, on the felt. Um, but I loved that there's that little, again, like there's a certain amount of humor and a certain amount of levity that you also see in Shakespeare and you also see in Dead with the novel, but it's that kind of subtle, you know, gentlemen, watch the felt, that kind of thing. So this is that amazing soliloquy. Were you bullied, Mr. Bullock, when young and incapable? Again, bullied, Bullock, um, it's just so, it's so well done. When young and incapable, now you see wrongs everywhere and bullying you feel called to remedy. So that idea and bullying you feel called to remedy is so Shakespearean, again, because of the inversion, um, but also because of, of the choice of words, you know, this idea of remedy. Um, not that remedy is so, uh, you know, so unusual, but being called to remedy that, and it, 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 yeah, there's a certain sort of elevation of the diction. The bully who oppressed your youth isn't at the table with us. Perhaps he's long dead. If you would view the present with more clarity, perhaps you would recognize that I do not victimize my daughter, but am merely asking for a small portion of the ample proceeds from her vein. So this is one of those double entendres um, where he, this idea of the vein, of course, is her, is her uh, very successful mine, but it is also, of course, that he is like a blood sucker. So this is that kind of double entendre that also feels very Shakespearean. And I love this idea, if you would view the present with more clarity, perhaps you would, so that, that, I, that kind of, um, again, there's a certain amount of inflation, you know, it's not like, if you saw what was going on, or if you could see the situation, if you would view the present with more clarity, it's very, um, it, it, it's, it's beautiful, it's beautifully done, but there is a certain amount of, of sort of architecture here that feels very Shakespearean. And then I, I we skip a, a bit and he says, 
if you inhale and expel pure righteousness, my olfactories are keen to the smell of shit. So that's the kind of um, up at the, the high and low that Shakespeare is so good at, at, at sort of juxtaposing. So if you have this idea of righteousness, my olfactories are keen to the smell of shit. So the smell of shit, that idea of, of something that is very base uh, is very Shakespearean. And even, but the use of keen, there is is sort of this anglicized kind of um, that that whole locution. My olfactories are keen to the smell of shit. Olfactories, obviously, um, meaning his his nose and his sense of smell. But you have an elevation there, and keen, you know, for American ears sounds a little elevated, and then the smell of shit. So there's this this high low thing that's happening that's very Shakespearean, um, and then. He says some other stuff and there's this kind of beautiful long sort of accumulation of, of uh, tension. Timothy Oliphant's getting more and more worked up and we have this beautiful camera work where all of the people who support Timothy Oliphant are showing up and moving into uh, the room. And then we have him slow, um, uh, uh, his the, the father, the one who's um, in fact being a bully, that father says to Timothy, well, says to um, Seth Bullock, I suppose you'd best take your swing. It's so, it's so beautiful. Is that, I suppose you'd best take your swing. Again, not great at scansion, not great at reading that kind of thing, but there is a feeling of like, uh, you know, the, the way that you would have in the conclusion of a sonnet, you know, where, where it feels like you're building towards something and then the end is very satisfying, not only because it's unexpected. I mean, this is a, an older gentleman saying to Seth Bullock, he's supposed to be significantly older because his daughter Alma is about Seth's age. So this older man is saying, I suppose you'd better take your swing. It's unexpected and it's and it's beautifully kind of uh, upfront there. But I am so, I'm so um, hopeful that this was interesting for you all. We haven't ever done something like this before. The, the television series, it's again, those three seasons and then there's the movie. I found it so engaging and so, um, I mean, what you saw is definitely representative. Like it's it's violent and there's lots of gross language and there's lots of chauvinist stuff. And the immigrant, um, there are Chinese immigrants who live in uh, Deadwood as well. And you know that is difficult to watch at lots of times. But there is something that is so beautiful about the language. And um, I say this all the time to other people, not so much in the seminars, but this idea that like, I honestly, sometimes I'm like, why would anyone ever read? There's such great television. So, um, I mean, I know why people read. We all love to read. But the point is that there is really, really a lot of great television out there. And I was so happy about uh, the opportunity to kind of dive in a little bit so I hope that um, I hope that this opened your eyes a bit to uh, some of the Shakespearean tropes and how they are used in television, but also to to sort of the way that we can have these different uh, iterations of art. So I hope this was helpful and interesting. And bye, everybody. Thank you for being here.